Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You know, I like how Stanford football's Twitter account put it on Tuesday. Quote, working remotely this week. Sign of the times, isn't it? Cardinal already in Corvallis for a critical showdown with the Beavers, and that is topic number one on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Great to have you with us on Thursday, December 10th, 2020. Thank you for taking time out and joining the show and spending some time with us. We've got a lot to do. Two and two Stanford versus two and three Oregon State. Pac-12 North action coming your way Saturday evening, a 7.30 kickoff on ESPNU. We're on the U this, this week, folks, uh, from uh, Corvallis between the Cardinal and the Beavers. Plenty to get to, including David Shaw's latest thoughts and a little bit from Stanford Nickelback, Jonathan McGill as well. And I'm really fired up to uh, have our special guest on this week's show. And I'm sure he was mighty pleased how Stanford beat Washington last week. A critical member of the Stanford Tunnel Workers Union, former Cardinal lineman Sam Schwartzstein. Looking forward to getting his thoughts on comparing how close this year's offensive line has been performing to the, the lofty standards that were set by Schwartzstein and DeCastro and Martin and, and a bunch of other guys who were in the old school Tunnel Workers Union squad. And plus a few of his other thoughts around Stanford football and football in general as well. Sam Schwartzstein, our special guest on this week's TreeCast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Thank you for downloading and listening. And you can subscribe, of course, via your favorite listening app, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart, any way you want to go, the TreeCast is there. And I've been here following Stanford Sports for... Gosh, this is my 28th season. How about that? So uh, pleased to be with the Cardinal and following Stanford once again this fall, as truncated as it has been. And looking forward to getting back in the swing of things when my particular sports get back on the back on the field uh, for the Pac-12 network, ideally beginning after the first of the year. So plenty of ground to cover. Of course, don't forget the NFL season and college football uh, rounding the corner and heading for home. And you might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino. It never closes. Ever. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. As usual, we hit the ground running with three things you need to know around Stanford football. Why waste time? Let's dive straight in with number one. And while Stanford's coming off a great win at Washington, it certainly came at a bit of a cost. Stanford's deep and talented receiving core isn't anywhere as deep now. David Shaw shared the latest during his Tuesday morning presser. Both Connor Weddington and Michael Wilson uh, will not uh, be with us. They will not play. Um, either probably for the rest of the season. Connor and Mike have been so great for us. Um, you know, Connor's fourth year senior, um, voted a captain, uh, return man, uh, as well as, 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 as a, ca- a definite big time receiver for us. Mike Wilson's been a punt returner and, and uh, one of our leading receivers for the last couple of years. 
Um, it's going to be difficult without those two guys. All right, so that's Stanford's leading receiver in Wilson, and it's third leading receiver in Connor Weddington. Osiris St. Brown's season is over. We only saw him during the Cal game. This has effects beyond just the receiving core and the passing game. It also affects things in special teams as well. We'll dive deeper into that a bit later on in the show, but but certainly an unfortunate development for an offense that was getting closer to finding its true groove. Let's get to number two. And earlier this week, probably the biggest subplot for this entire game coming up between the Cardinal and the Beavers was, was whether Oregon State's best player would be able to go. Running back Jamar Jefferson is, B, is the B's best player, and if you made the case that he'd be the best individual player on the field Saturday night regardless of team, I wouldn't argue. That guy is a dude. 675 yards rushing in four games, and he dropped 226 on the Ducks as well. Love watching that guy play. But Jefferson missed Oregon State's loss at Utah last week because he was in COVID-19 protocol. As of Tuesday morning, Jefferson's status against Stanford was in doubt. That's when I asked Shaw for his thoughts on that development. Do I have a vote whether or not we see Jamar Jefferson? <laughs> like, are, we, are we voting? Um, uh, I, I think he's he's been the most explosive back in the conference. Um, he's a special player. Um, and I hope for his sake, too, that he does play. Um, all these games are better when our top players play. Um, if, if you can't play, I get it. I understand it. Um, it's just a crazy world we live in now, but he's a, he's a difference maker. Yeah, he certainly is. And uh, if Shaw voted no on Jefferson, what is this, 1800? Uh, he didn't win. On Wednesday afternoon, Oregon State announced that Jefferson has been cleared to play against Stanford. That's certainly good news for the Beavers. They're already without their QB1. Tristan Jebbia got hurt against Oregon on a play that shouldn't have happened if the refs had correctly called a touchdown on the play before, but, but that's a different story. And Jefferson's backup, uh, B.J. Baylor, questionable for this week as well. So they'll still be shorthanded overall, but looks like Jamar Jefferson is good to go and cleared for takeoff against the Cardinal. Can Stanford ground him? More on that later in the show. But let's wrap up three things with number three. And just a reminder that this game between the Cardinal and the Beavers was supposed to originally be Stanford's scheduled home finale. But that health order from Santa Clara County changed all of that. And now the Cards have been on the move ever since, starting with last week's game at Seattle. Roadshow continues this week as Stanford has set up shop in Corvallis. They're using Oregon State's indoor practice facility as headquarters for the moment. And it'll keep going next week, too, wherever that takes them. And for a possible bowl game as well, with a little luck. If Paul McCartney and Wings were here, they'd call the Cardinal a band on the run. But while David Shaw keeps the classic rock theme, he uses a different band to describe the team situation. We're a traveling band right now. You know, just tell us the venue. We're good. Uh, I keep sorry, I keep mentioning John Gruden, but John used to always talk about the Rolling Stones. Um, no matter where they play, they're going to bring the house down. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, this country, another country, you know, turn the bus around, go back and play at the local local dive. You know, we're going to go, we're going to go turn it up. So um, I think our guys are just at that point now to let's not worry about where it is. Once they give us a place to go, let's go there and, and be at our best. So sorry for anybody who's not a Rolling Stones fan. I am. Um, so that, uh, that, 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 that image always fires me up, right? The guy's been doing it for doggone 40 plus years. And um, wherever we got to go play, let's just go play and, and, uh, and bring the house down. It's not a bad CCR reference with Traveling Band at the start either, but, but I, I really don't think rock and roll gets much better than, than Midnight Rambler. 
which is why you're hearing it in the background right now. Now, after this game is done, Stanford may travel on Sunday, maybe on Monday. And of course, we don't know where they may head right now as next week is the plus one week of the Pac-12 schedule, or as I've been calling it, the mystery week. Regardless, this season, which has been a 19th nervous breakdown for some and proven to others that you can't always get what you want, can still end with the Cardinal getting some satisfaction. Sorry, couldn't resist. Those are three things. A couple of quick notes. Uh, one in football, center Drew Dahlman has, uh, was named Pac-12 Offensive Lineman of the Week. Congratulations to him and the offensive line's efforts as a whole against the Huskies last week. And in Stanford women's hoops, a couple of scheduling changes of note for the now number one Cardinal. Friday's game against UC Davis has been canceled. That was supposed to be played at Maples, but things being what they are in Santa Clara County, that's not happening. On top of that, UC Davis paused its women's basketball activities due to health orders up in Yolo County. So that game not happening in either location right now. So that game is off the books. But Stanford has reportedly picked up a game next week at Pacific on December 15th. Pacific announced this on Tuesday. As I say this on Wednesday evening, Stanford is not confirmed. If Stanford beats Cal in Berkeley on Sunday, then a win in Stockton would put Tara Vanderveer on top of the list and past the legendary Pat Summit as women's college basketball's all-time winningest coach. So perhaps a chance at history for the Cardinal and Tara Vanderveer at Pacific on Tuesday night. Of course, Stanford football coming off of a very nice win over the Washington Huskies. Always nice whenever the Cardinal can come up with a result against those guys, especially in that stadium. And the way Stanford got that win had to make a whole lot of people feel pretty good especially, I'd imagine, some former Stanford offensive linemen. Well, let's talk to one right now. Our special guest on this edition of the TreeCast, you remember him as a Stanford center. He was second-team All-Pac-12 All -Pac in the 2012 season and was most recently the director of football operations, innovation, and strategy, that's a cool title, of the XFL. Really fired up to have Sam Schwartzstein joining us on this episode of the TreeCast. Sam, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, don't say Pac-10. I'm not as old as Chase Beeler. Yeah. So I, you know, I was born the second year of the Pac-12, so I don't want to be that old. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm glad yeah. I caught myself there. <laughs> yeah, and then when you're the first employee uh, of the XFL, you can kind of make up your own title. So that's why my title's so cool. All right. Nice yeah. work. Nice work. Kind of made it a little easier to put the business card out there. Uh, I, I have a feeling that you had to feel good with Stanford's win on Saturday, 31-26, the final up in Seattle last weekend. I, I have a feeling that you had to feel good about that result, not just because Stanford won, but how Stanford won and how the Cardinal were able to largely grind the Huskies up, especially in key situations. What were your big takeaways from that game last week in Seattle? Yeah, to me, this team reminds me of the 2009 team that we had with Toby Gerhardt, where we were just kind of finding our identity. Um, but they can do so many different things on offense. You know, Greg Roman came in and we had about, you know, six different or we had one gap scheme play before he got in there. And then we had a ton of different gap scheme plays. And we beat them with gap scheme, but this week the guys also beat them with zone. We called outside zone on a fourth down. Like, that was, like, crazy to see. that. That's our go-to call. But, you know, big people in there, Miles Hinton. Um, I got to talk to the O-line a couple weeks ago after the loss to Oregon. 
and uh, Coach Carberry made sure to single him out, knowing we were going to start running Power King again. And that was kind of the start of us finding our identity. They don't like the result we have at Colorado, but um, this O-line is finding its identity. We have a ton of talent up front, and they're doing a lot of things. And I'll tell you this, the probably thing that was most exciting was we had a plan and we executed. And we're probably playing the best D-line in the Pac-12. Um, they had the guy who had three sacks a game. Uh, I don't think he had anything against us. So um, they came with a plan and they executed that plan and reminded me, like, you're going to get in a bar fight with us and we're going to win that bar fight. That's the kind of team this is. Um, maybe not as flashy as some of the other teams, but, man, do we still have some dudes at skill position players that these old linemen, you know, I thought Foster played great. Drew, I mean, Drew is probably the best center in the country. Um, and I remember him when he was coming in when Coach Dahlman was was my old line coach and my recruiter, um, and seeing Drew Man now, you know, be probably the best center in the country. And I don't think that's that's a crazy thing to say. So it was awesome to see them play that way. Yeah, certainly takes you back to the days where you might walk in to the stadium to play Stanford, but you might get wheeled out. You had a pretty good chance of not walking out of the place upright. And it was interesting. Uh, I was in on uh, Foster Sorrell's uh, post-game uh, media availability after that game was done, and he was using terms like like broke their will and, and road-grading dudes. I'd imagine, is, is this how offensive linemen talk dirty? Because I'm sure that has to make you feel pretty good hearing stuff like that, too, and hearing those guys talk like that as well. Well, I don't want to get too intimate, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, that's, um, you know, that, that's really what the whole line chat, we have a whole group chat from when we played together, Ben Muth, Andy Phillips, Chris Marinelli, Matt Copa, Derek Hall, um, Joe Dembeski, all of us were talking that this is, this, this, we were pushing people around, throwing guys out the club. You know, all that kind of uh, that language. But that was that's what it was. And it felt good to watch that. I had a bunch of guys texting me like, this must be fun for you. Jeff Schwartz, those guys were like, this must be fun for you uh, watching this group of O-linemen now. Throwing guys out the club. I hadn't heard that one. I like that. I like that. Um, you're a perfect person to ask this. How can you tell when an offensive line is truly clicking and, and how close potentially is this current group, you may have just hinted at it here a little bit, but, but how close is this current group to, to being at a super high level? So I'm fortunate enough to be part of the Joe Moore Award, which is the award given to the best offensive line in the country. Um, and I'm talk, I talk with Aaron Taylor, Jeff Schwartz, Cole Kublik, um, Mike Golick Jr., Bear Jones, a few other guys. And we kind of talk each week about, you know, what O-lines we're seeing and what do well. And you kind of know it when you see it. I was beyond impressed with week one from what I saw because uh, Oregon brought a pro-style blitz package. Um, they brought crosstalk about eight times. They brought a, a bunch of unique exotic blitzes, and we picked it up every time. Uh, week two was a little rougher for us, more mental errors, more physical. They were really physical up front. Colorado is a really well-coached team. Um, and then since then, we've kind of – gone back to that week one O-line where these guys are all speaking the same language, especially because they can't even meet in the same room. You know, we would have tons of extra meetings with David Yankee and, you know, to get the young guys on the board, Khalil Wilkes, and they don't have an opportunity to do that really here. And so it's up to Drew and the rest of the, the Walter and get those guys, you know, all on the same page. It's extremely difficult. And we've relatively been on the same page, no mental errors. Um, they, I think they're one of the top O-lines in the country. Um, you know, you look at the Alabamas and the Notre Dames and, you know, Coastal Carolina is one of my favorite ones to watch. Um, 
those guys have probably clicked a little bit more, largely because they have more time together um, and different circumstances to be able to be in the same room. But this old line, I mean, I was beyond impressed with what we did with the challenge that we had last week. Yeah, and I know David Shaw is super high on what this offensive line could potentially look like in the next couple of years, especially keeping an eye on a kid like Miles Hinton, as you mentioned earlier in this chat. Um, you were part of an incredible era of Stanford football. You were there when things were kind of starting to get going, and then you were there on a part of the rocket ship ride when Stanford really catapulted itself and became a next-level program in the early part of, of last decade. How would you describe your era of Stanford football on the farm? You know, they always have like the, the how boys, the wow boys, the farm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we were kind of like, you know, the now boys. Um, I think what we did uh, was kind of look convention in the face and say, we're going to do the opposite, right? You know, I think half the kids at Stanford went to private schools and high school. And Harbaugh had us believing we were blue collar kids, you know? Not saying there's not blue collar kids at Stanford, but you know, in that community, Palo Alto doesn't scream blue collar, even though it's a farm. Um, and we kind of took that mentality and kind of changed the ideals. And then we got some blue chip recruits in. Um, it's really easy to win games when Andrew Luck's your quarterback. Um, but you know, we also weren't going to go out there and throw it 50 times. You know, we had an identity, we stuck with it. It might piss fans off, but David Shaw wins games, so don't question. You know, like it's going to, you know, it's good. It's people get mad at how he tries to win games. Maybe I don't like him kicking field goals now that I've that dove into the data more working at the XFL, but you know, it's, he wins games and no one's won games at, Stan, at Stanford like him. And it's because he has an identity sticks with it. And we saw that what happened when, Hey, we went back to the original identity of what that Stanford team was. And, you know, what was great is we had a lot of guys We fought through a lot of adversity and that's kind of made us close. Um, have few friends outside of football, but you know, a lot, not a lot because that's how close we were. Um, guys like Michael Thomas um, and, you know, Andrew Luck, I still steal, you know, leadership tactics from them in my job and learning from young guys that, you know, I, you know David Yankee, you know, watching him progress and become the guy that he is, is, you know, part of the process. And I loved the group I played with. David DeCastro still watching him play is so fun. Um, but it was about being hard nosed. I mean, Chase Thomas kind of represents the whole group, right? You know, chip on his shoulder, four star kid from the South, lost the star from rivals when he committed to Stanford. Like, oh, we must have missed because he likes Stanford. Um, and then just was a, a, a dog out there. Um, I think that, that that's kind of what it was just a bunch of dogs, smart kids, but, you know, a bunch of dogs that wanted it now, right? They don't want to wait around. That's why I call us the now boys. Yeah, I remember uh, being in South Bend. I've told the story on the show before. I remember being in South Bend in 2010 and, and watching, watching you guys come off the bus that day. I, I could tell right away something was different. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, I don't know if Notre Dame's ready for this. And they weren't. One of the great wins of, uh, of, of a fantastic season. If I drop the number 446 on you, does that, does that remind you of anything in particular? That's Washington. Yes, indeed. That's 2011 Washington. <laughs> yeah. That was bonkers. I still can't. I was giddy watching it. What was it like playing in that game? So, okay, this is hilarious because um, how do I want to tell this part of the story? Because this is fun. This is like the, the statute of limitations are over. Washington <laughs> at the time had by far the highest paid staff in the Pac-12. 
right? And you know coaches look at that stuff. And we went up to Washington the year before in 2010. I think it's the biggest butt kicking there's ever been on a football team. I think they had 16 yards of total offense. Um, we beat them like 41 nothing or something. And it's because when they when when we had a, a ripcord was the call when we saw they were bringing Sam Strong safety or Will Free safety blitzes, we would change to Power King and we knew what they were going to do and we'd go and do it. They telegraphed it. Well, you know that 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 at the time guy was making a million dollars a year as a defensive coordinator for us to just destroy that. So next year we go out and he sees us do ripcord and he's like, yeah, I got you now. I'm going to change what we did once you ripcord. But they sent everyone back. You know we're running power at you. So instead of bringing everyone up against us and uh, stacking the box, they now sent everyone back at the cover too. <laughs> they couldn't stop us when we had all those guys in the, bo in the box. You know, and so again, it's pretty easy when you have Andrew Luck making sure you're in the right play every time. But also, it's very easy when David DeCastro's uh, doing an ace block with you. So, <laughs> so if, he's, if he's helped me out, this is funny. That game, uh, Danny Shelton was a freshman. And I, I went to block him. And then David was going to come high leg. And he hit him so hard. The guy's 400 pounds. Hit him so hard, they called holding on me. Now, I held almost every other play, but that one play I did not hold. <laughs> and I still got called for holding. And everyone's like, you know, they'll huddle like, oh, it's okay, Sam, don't worry about it. We'll get it. I was like, I, I'm not mad. Like, David hit him so hard. I'm not <laughs> upset. Like, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I'd be upset if they caught me doing something. Unreal. Unreal game. Unreal results. And uh, certainly one of the more fun memories, I think, of Stanford football over the last uh, decade or so. Um, you were the first employee that Oliver Luck, one of my other favorite people, hired at the XFL. Obviously, the 2020 season didn't end the way you guys wanted it to with the pandemic and then the league uh, eventually folding. But, but the league seemed to accomplish some things. Uh, what impact do you hope the XFL has on football going forward? Well, so when Oliver hired me, he gave me the vision that he wanted to help push the game forward. There's no true steward of the game is how he put it. Um, someone who looks over the game to make sure the game is being run properly. Um, no one had adapted a game specifically what the fan wanted while taking into account what officiating coaches and players all have in their mind. Um, and so I think that what we did was give the fan what they wanted. Um, regardless of what AJ says, we made it player focused. Um, and we had, uh, you know, coaches involved in the process. And I think, you know, with our kickoff, coach player communication, our timing rules, hopefully the, the extra point might be a little too far removed for the NFL, but hopefully those types of things um, is a lasting impact that people see that, you know, Oliver and myself and my team really put our heart and soul into giving fans and making the game of football better. Not trying to make it gimmicky, not trying to make it different, mm -hmm. but actually just make the game better. Tremendous difference, I think, between all those things. Did I sense a, did I sense a dig at A.J. Tarpley there a little bit? Oh, of course there's a dig at A.J. Tarpley. <laughs> AJ, AJ's never been happy a day in his life. A dollars could show up at his doorstep, and he'd be like, what, what, what just a million? Really? Okay. <laughs> um, kind of along those lines, not, not on, the, on, on the A.J. Tarpley lines, but on the XFL lines, um, what innovations, as you watch college football right now, what innovations in that sport currently excite you as that sport has evolved? What could stand some freshening up in your mind? Um, college football end of game, I like. Um, with their first down stops the clock. I think we've seen a lot of NFL games wish we had that. 
um, their game by doing them by doing it the entire game uh, is bad. So, you know, it takes too long. The game, you know, Texas has yet to have a game under three and a half hours. I watched every Texas game with my brother, and he has he watched every Stanford game with me, and you know, we just most games are four hours, right? Especially because they have a chance to go to overtime. That that's not how it should be. We averaged two hours and fifty one minutes and had the same amount of plays in a game as college football with the same commercial load. Um, they just do it a little bit differently there. Um, but their end game scenario is very cool because without timeouts, you know that there's still a chance someone could come back. You can get three possessions in with two minutes left in the game. Um, so I like that. Their overtime um, is really bad. Uh, bad for player safety. Um, uh, if Bo McNall is listening to this, he's going to throw his phone across the room. But the, the, the problem with it is it's unfair. There's 60%, 2% win rate if you go second. Um, some years it's lower than that, but I use the numbers that work for me. Um, and so, you know, I think there's an update, and that's what we did is we made it a, a single play possession. So going first or second doesn't matter because you don't have to uh, be contingent on what the other team did. So we called it information gained. If you got, if you went uh, first in overtime or second overtime, you know the information. So they can't go for it on their first fourth down, but you can because they, if they kick, they have to kick a field goal because they have to take the points versus the team that goes second knows they can go for it or kick a field goal, right? So that, that we don't have in the XFL. And then largely what they need is, I love their pace of play. They use a lot of signals, but you'll see those signs that are being held up that have four faces on it or something. Mm -hmm. Those don't mean anything. That's to block sign stealing. Sign stealing is a really big problem in college football. We saw a big problem in, in baseball. Um, just use coast to player communication like we do. We have it in every player's helmet. Um, it's 800 bucks a unit. I can get it down to $99 a unit. Um, but every school can afford that because I know they can afford all the nice things they have at their facilities. So the large problem is, is hey, some teams can't do it. Well, you know what? Maybe if you have these teams in your division, maybe uh, don't build uh, 19 Whirlpools, Alabama. You can, if, if a team in the SEC can't afford coach to player communication, let's worry about making it a fair game first. And you can, you know, sacrifice one Whirlpool and, and provide that to the rest of the conference, you know? Yeah, but you, you, need that, uh, you need that indoor slide in your football facility, right? That indoor golf yeah. course? Come on. Well, just one indoor slide will be good <laughs> enough, you know? You don't need nine of them. Uh, and I'm right there with you on the whole clock thing. That's the one thing I would change if I could change anything in college football. Uh, as we wrap this up here, uh, obviously with everything that the team's going through right now, they're bunking down in Corvallis this week as their road show continues for another week. And then next week, who knows where, where, where things go from there. But as, as the team continues its, its, its road trip, the things that it's gone through, the things that it's going to go through for the remainder of the regular season, you, let's do a little role play here. You are about to address the team. What would you tell them? I think what they need to understand is that they're about to have, they, they, they lost a lot and they should understand that. They lost a lot of games that they could have played. Stuff, nothing they did affected them. They lost Davis Mills for a game um, due to a, a bad test. They lost a lot because of someone in the other part of the world decided did something different, right? Nothing that they did affected why they only get to play six games this year or five games now, right? Um, but relish every moment and relish the opportunity that you get to go out there and actually play with your brothers and still play football. Um, there's no, you don't get to play football after this if you don't make the NFL. 
you know, that is not what happens. Not an XFL doesn't come around all the time, and I know they're going to come back in 2022. But you know, who's to say they make it, right? Um, you don't know if you ever get an opportunity to do this, so relish it. These are your best friends. These are the people you're communicating for the rest of your life with. These are your closest people before you go on to the next level and you start your life. So relish these moments, embrace these moments, be excited that you get to do this again. Um, especially because there's no uh, no way to have fun in Corvallis but to win. That's the worst place to play. <laughs> oh, you don't like that chainsaw going on in the background? Come on now. <laughs> the chainsaw, they often make you stay in Eugene. Uh-huh. They're gonna they're gonna set your alarm clocks in the Eugene hotel bat uh, and so wake up at 4 a.m. Oh, and those dudes do not like you. No. Um, Oregon State and I work with a bunch of Oregon State alums now, guys who played there when I was there. And I, that was the game I got. I tore my MCL. I have a hip injury that I still have to deal with. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I do not like playing Oregon State. Those are the guys you do not want to see. Sam, I relish this chat. Thanks a bunch. I appreciate you uh, taking time out and uh, joining us here. Uh, stay safe, stay, stay healthy, stay sane. Have a great holiday season, and hope we get a chance to chat again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. It was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Hope you had as much fun with, uh, with that chat, uh, listening to that chat as I did uh, conducting it with uh, Sam Schwartzstein. By the way, his uh, girlfriend, Jenna Becerra, hosts the Believe in Softball podcast so she's a member of the believe podcast network family does a great job with that and uh, i can't wait until softball uh, gets started up again uh hopefully on time and on target uh when uh winter late winter rolls around and look i i always love going inside the trenches i always love talking to offensive linemen past and present just getting inside their minds because i really don't think that that any position unit is more in sync and in tune with the whole team dynamic than offensive linemen. Makes sense, right? Because very rarely as an offensive line can you perform as just one individual player. You know, it's just your one finger on an entire hand is how I've heard it described uh, being on the offensive line. So I always love talking to offensive linemen and, and, and getting their thoughts. And I thought Sam was spot on about the clock and how it's worked in college football. There is no reason in the world. And I've, I've said this to David Shaw. It doesn't seem to be that big of a priority for him with the rules committees that he sits on, on the uh, NCAA level, but there's no reason for college football games to be going three and a half to four hours, no matter how good it is. Was it the Rose Bowl? Remember this, the Rose Bowl against uh, USC and Penn State, the 2017 Rose Bowl went four hours and 12 minutes. When the Stanford Iowa Rose Bowl was over in 11 seconds, but he was spot on about the clock, and I really appreciate uh, his thoughts on that and everything else. Great to have Sam Schwartzstein in the mix on this episode. Now back to Stanford football and the here and now entirely here, and I, I think there, I, I think there were certainly a lot of things to like from Stanford's performance of late, the last couple of weeks in particular, especially from the quarterback. It's amazing how Davis Mills looks when he's had a full week to practice, isn't it? And after that game, in, in, in the postgame, you might remember, I, I think I actually played this uh, soundbite as well. I might have. I have to go back to the tape. But, but David Shaw, when he was asked about Davis Mills' day, Shaw said that Mills was good but not great after the Washington game. And at first I was thought, I thought, really? Okay, all right. That, that's That's... I don't want to say harsh, but maybe underselling what Davis did in some respects uh, against the Huskies. But but there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Shaw may have been underselling that somewhat. 
I'm going to play this whole answer from David Shaw in his Tuesday press conference on uh, on, on, on Tuesday. It, the whole thing runs three minutes, and I'm going to play his whole answer because I don't want any context to be lost here. And I think his whole answer here is worth playing. Shaw was asked for his thoughts on Tuesday on Davis Mills' performance after looking at the tape from Seattle. I told Davis that I said, I hope you appreciate the fact that, that um, I'm going to have really, really ridiculously high standards for you because um, I think he's capable. Um, I mean, 20 for 30, over 250 and a touchdown is great. Um, and I want even better um, out of him and for him. Um, uh, and uh, I learned that from John Gruden. I think you've heard me say this over the years. Um, when you've got a great player, that's the one that you have to push. That's the one you have to be, you have to, have to push your great players to be even better. Um, and I believe that wholeheartedly. And um, Davis understands that he wants, he wants to be great. Um, and I think there's another level for him. And if he didn't have it in him, I wouldn't say it, whether to him or publicly. Um, but I think it was a really, really good game on the verge of a great game. Now, he made some great plays. Um, and I think people really saw now nationally televised game. I've been talking about his athleticism, you know, since he walked on campus. And I think you saw that in the pocket, the pocket movement, um, the, the awkward body angles um, where he can throw the ball and throw the ball accurately. Um, there's not a lot of guys that can make that throw um, uh, to the, the touchdown pass he made to Scooter Harrington. Um, if you really saw the body position that he was in, you know, quick play action to the left, um, kind of bearing down on you and still not be able to get the ball, you get your get your feet back around and flick that ball and have it go up and down in the back corner of the end zone over outstretched arms of a defender. Those throws, those throws are difficult. The, the, the first third down conversion on the last drive, going to his left with a guy in his face um, and anticipating that Simi was going to come back and putting that ball down in the way so only Simi could get it. Those are big time throws that not a lot of guys make. And um, so, yeah, I, I think he's capable of so much. And uh, I'm excited to see even the next level, hopefully this game uh, and however many games we have left, really seeing him continue to um, really put more film on. And, and I looked at this the other day, I think he's still – the guy has still played less than 14 college football games. What is it, 11? Something like that. Um, that including an 0 for 2 his first game as a in the in, in college football. Um, so uh, as a as an NFL evaluator for for many years, um, uh, looking at quarterbacks, uh, you know, you always say you want you want to really evaluate two years of film, in particular that second year of film. Um, and he's barely finishing a 12-game regular college season, college football season, so I think I think the sky is really really high. Um, the sky's the limit for him, um, and I'll, I'll just continue to try to push him uh, to be as good as he can be. And um, you know, I know he won't be, and we won't be satisfied with with very good because I think he's better than very good. Okay, a lot to unpack there, as you would expect from a whole three-minute clip there. But, but a, a few things that really stood out to me throughout the, uh, throughout the entirety of that answer. Number one, Sean, the offensive coaches, really believe in Davis Mills. And they are acting accordingly and, and placing things 
uh, treating uh, treating him accordingly and uh, placing things on his plate accordingly. And and it makes sense because look, you know, I, I'm sure you can tell. You know, I, I've played some of Mills' sound bites over the past year or so. Very even keeled guy. You know, I, I loved KJ Costello's um, readily apparent charisma and and just extrovertedness. But I also appreciate Mills and how even keeled he is. And I've heard him described on several occasions and from several places that 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 he's the guy that's that's most like the coaches. And it certainly makes sense when you hear Mills talk. Uh, the athleticism uh, from Mills. You heard some of David Shaw go through some of some of the throws that Mills made for some from some throw from some positions and body positions that that are very difficult to make throws from, much less much less accurate non-time throws from, and and things that things that you don't notice that you heard Shaw pointing out, and other athletic things you see, like Davis tackling a defender. Oh, and by the way, he can catch too. Remember the game in Corvallis last year. Mills is an academic senior, and and I'm seeing some fans wonder if. If he's done enough to impress the NFL, and, and when I saw this, I was, my reaction was, why are we talking about this now? <laughs> he's, he's only played 12 games. He's made nine starts. I mean, dude, I, I, like what, I like a lot of what I've seen from Davis Mills, too, but, but man, that sample size is just too small to even be thinking about next-level type stuff and what his future could possibly be in the National Football League. I'm more concerned about what's going to happen to Davis and how he's going to look in the 2020 season. And I can say this, with the full week of practice and a full arsenal of complementary weapons, Mills can play very, very well. That being said, going forward this year, Mills isn't going to have all of his complementary weapons at his disposal. Which brings us to Saturday night as we start to turn our, our full attention to Corvallis. And as mentioned, Stanford will be without wide receivers Mike Wilson and Connor Weddington, Stanford's leading, leading and uh, third leading receivers, respectively. And that affects not just Stanford's passing game, but other areas too. Special teams takes a bit of a hit here. Nathaniel Pete takes over for Weddington as the, Cardinal, as the Cardinals' main kickoff return guy, along with Casey Philkins, who usually lines up uh, back um, with uh, Pete now. And Philkins or fre freshman Bryce Farrell uh, will take punts in place of Wilson. So some personnel shifting in special teams as a result of those injuries to Wilson and Weddington. To Weddington. You know how key special teams has been to Stanford so far this year. The good news is that Simi Fajoko, Still very much in the mix with his size and his speed. He's got a lot of the tangibles that a lot of scouts like for the NFL. However, some intangibles starting to coalesce for Simi Fedit for Hoko too. Once Simi found out that Wilson and Weddington wouldn't be able to finish the game against Washington, David Shaw certainly noticed a change in Simi. You could tell when those two guys went down, it's almost like he grew two inches. It was like, hey, you I'm here. You guys need me more. So I'm ready to go. And um, uh, even practice the other day, jumping up to the front of the line and saying, hey, I got to be I got to lead this group. Um, uh, it's it's as hard as it is to see those two guys not play for us. Um, you know, as a, that's how excited I am to see Simi really step up and realize I got to lead this crew now. Yeah, Fajoko coming through with two big catches on that final drive, including one where he was actually playing a position that that he does not play. But Shaw noticed something in the in the UW defense and said, "Hey, I need you to play the Z spot, and just we're gonna go, gonna go double verticals. I need you there." 
So Shaw him out there instead, and Fajoko responded with the big-time grab. So Simi Fajoko, still in the mix, but beyond him, who else is there? Shaw runs down the list of candidates. Bryson Tremaine this entire year, there's a reason why he's put on scholarship. Um, you know, we wear those wearable things that, that we, uh, you know, to make sure we know how, how far guys are traveling. It's, it's mainly for health and safety. Um, nobody on our football team travels more distance than Bryson Tremaine, both in practice and in games, covering kicks, um, all over special teams, uh, coming and making plays. Um, guys made, made four unbelievable catches. I mean, just just this year, um, so he stepped up and made big plays. Elijah uh, Elijah has really come in, and we knew he he's got a really high ceiling, and he's kind of had a bit of a slow start, and then now this past game thrust into more playing time. Uh, you know, caught five balls this past game, um, and really tough catches with guys on his back. Um, this is a 235 pound uh, quasi receiver, quasi tight end. Um, that we think has a chance to be really good. So we've got three guys right now that have stepped up. Um, you, you see the depth, you'll see the depth chart. Um, we've got a couple more guys that are right behind those guys. So we still have depth. Once again, uh, I'm beating a dead horse on this all year. Our depth this year is completely different than last year. Um, last year, when we got a couple of guys down, we were really, really struggling. This year, hey, we're putting guys in and we're good to go. Um, you know, we've got three guys that are ready to go that have played a lot. Got three guys right behind them, and we got three more guys right behind those guys if, if, if somebody else goes down. So there's a great comfort level with our guys right now. Um, and now we don't have to change a whole lot schematically. We're just going to go out there and play. Okay, great. So will that quantity make up for the quality lost without Wilson and Weddington? I, that, that's the biggest question mark for Stanford offensively for me right now. Uh, John Humphrey's a freshman. He's already played in all four games, made a catch at UW, saw a couple of other critical targets in the second half last week that I'm sure he might have loved to have come down with. Uh, Bryson Tremaine, Elijah Higgins were also in key spots um, as well. So it's not like guys are being shoved completely into the pool. They've seen snaps. They've seen playing time. But certainly their importance increases exponentially without a couple of the alpha dogs out there in Wilson and Weddington. As for the Beavers, they're two and three, and they need a win to be bowl eligible. Yes, even this season, that's that's still a thing for for Pac-12 teams. <laughs> I love how LSU they're three and five, and they're 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 self-imposing a bowl ban for this year. They're not going to a bowl anyway, so they're going to self-impose their ban this year. <laughs> you can't fire me. I quit. Whatever, LSU. Anyway, Oregon State actually hasn't lost a game to COVID so far this year. Oregon and UCLA, the only other Pac-12 schools uh, that can also say that. They got surprised by Washington State at home to start. Close loss at UW. Back-to-back big wins over Cal and Oregon. But then they had last week's shorthanded loss at Utah. Jamar Jefferson, as mentioned earlier in the show, cleared to play on Saturday. That takes some pressure off of quarterback Chance Nolan, who's replacing Tristan Jebbia. Beavers, however, can still be very dangerous. On Tuesday, I asked Shaw for his specific thoughts on Oregon State. What you see from them offensively is, is multiplicity. Um, there's so many different things. Jonathan Smith has done such a great job um, for, for, for how he has taken that group and you saw the improvements last year, and you see them even better this year. Um, the, the victory in the Civil War um, was uh, much like we've talked about, guys stepping in and just making plays um, and making plays at, at critical times. Um, defensively, 
there's still just so many different things that they do, different fronts they line up, they stem fronts, they change fronts, they, they mix up their coverages. Um, they've got a they've got a corner that looks like a, an a NBA power forward at six four. Um, yeah, so these it's just a, they do a bunch of different things that keep you off balance. Um, you know, so we have to focus on our execution. Um, these guys do they never give up. And once again, it's very similar to how 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 we are and. Um, I've had talks with Jonathan Smith before, and I have so much respect for him. And we talked about building programs and finding the right guys. And when you put the film on, you see they have the right guys. They go hard. They play physical. They play together. Um, probably one of the best uh, inside linebacker combinations in our conference. Um, these guys are active. They are quick. They are explosive. They are decisive. They don't stay blocked for long. Um, so uh, I think they've got a really good team. Um, and they're playing really well. Yeah, you got inside linebackers Avery Roberts, number 34, and Omar Spates, number 36. Those two are very active. Roberts actually had 21 tackles against Oregon last week. Didn't know that those kinds of numbers were still possible in this day and age uh, for linebackers. Also, offensive, or check that outside linebacker, uh, Hamilka Rashid. Where's number nine? He can wreck shop. Can Stanford's offensive line throw him out the club? I, I really have to start using that a, a, a lot more. And look, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Smith, uh, the head coach. Corvallis is not an easy place to win, and Jonathan Smith uh, has has done some very good things. Appears to have that program heading in the right trajectory right now. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his now, and I was certainly a huge fan of his back when he, when 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 he was a player. He was like, what, 5'11 five, five or so? Could barely stand and see over his offensive lineman. Barely completed half of his passes. But, you know, a typical line for him would be like 16 and 33 for like 350 yards and three touchdowns. Helps to have guys like Chad Johnson and TJ Hushmazada running, running around for you. But I really like Jonathan Smith back when he was taking snaps for the Beavers back in the day. Sam Schwartzstein touched on this at the end of our conversation with him. Corvallis is a sneaky, tough place to play. When folks mention the tough road trips that you have to make in the Pac-12, uh, Seattle and Eugene probably top the list. Salt Lake, uh, I don't think gets enough credit for how tough it is for the road team to go there and, and to win a ball game. Pullman's difficult, but for different circumstances other, other than just the crowd. Corvallis can make a case to be right up there, too. I've seen a lot of teams go up there expecting to win and instead leave the building embarrassed, including a Stanford team or two. Stanford's actually won 10 straight against OSU, which, quite honestly, I didn't realize. But they haven't gone up there and come away with an easy win in Corvallis since, since quite honestly, I don't know when. I actually had to do some looking up here. Uh, Stanford won by 25 up at Reeser in 2011, but... But that was a four-point game in the third quarter. So I wouldn't necessarily call that an easy win. You might have to go back, check this out, and maybe this is your mind-blowing stat of the week. You might have to go back to 1987. That was a 38-7 uh, result in favor of the Cardinal. And that was the last time probably that Stanford went up to Corvallis and cruised from start to finish. 1987 was a long time ago, folks. It would be nice if Stanford was able to, to buck that 33-year trend this time around. But I'm not sure if there's much reason to think that Stanford's in Oregon State. If, if Stanford does get the win here on Saturday, that it's, yeah, it's going to be an easy one here. I'm not sure that Stanford's going to make this one easy either. 
But if this game is close down to the stretch, this Stanford team does now have experience winning tight games on the road, thanks to the results in Berkeley and Seattle. That's certainly something David Shaw has noticed. Have the experience these last two weeks of being in a tight game and doing what it takes to come out on top um, is, is something hopefully that continues to stay with this team, uh, uh, you know, for as, as long as we're together. Because um, uh, all we're going to have now is road games from here on out. Uh, and those are these things are hard even without even without a crowd um, being on the road and you know, winning a tight game on the uh, against a, a good team is, is difficult. So take that mindset into this week. Yeah, and with no home, away from friends and family and fans, isolated from everyone else, unless they get forced to hold a walk through the public park or something, Stanford football is truly in we all we got mode. Cardinal Nickelback, Jonathan McGill explains. I joke around with the guys all the time. I'm like, hey, man, it's going to be a 30 for 30 about us someday. Like, this is crazy. Um, so I just think that, you know, us, you know, not, I guess, having, you know, as much friends as we normally would, you know, in a typical season, not us, you know, being able to really hang out with our families as we would in a typical season. Um, and us just kind of having each other as teammates and, you know, the coaching staff and the strength staff and the media. Um, I think that this is just bringing all of us together. You know, all of us, you know, was on the charter buses for four hours, you know, to come here. And um, I just think that, you know, just the conversations you have each and every day just continue to bring you closer together as a team. I check out that 30 for 30 for whatever it's worth. Keys to this one on Saturday night. As usual, my big keys for Stanford are to get six points instead of three for the defense to get off the field on third down and for the offense to stay on the field on third down. All of those still apply this week and will until further notice. Specific keys for this game, let's start here. When Jamar Jefferson's status was in doubt earlier this week, there were some folks who, who follow Oregon State football pretty closely who felt that that could mean the Beavers running more jet sweeps. And I saw that, and I started getting a cold sweat. And I started to have flashbacks uh, to Oregon State running jet sweeps and just killing the Cardinal with James Rogers and Jacquez Rogers back in the day, even though those jet sweeps were more of James Rogers, who was uh, more of the, the, the flyback, as Jacquez Rogers with the tailback. But James Rogers would just kill the Cardinal on those jet sweeps. So so I, I broke into a cold sweat for a moment or so when I saw that. Now, that being said, even with Jefferson cleared to go, if I'm Oregon State, I'd still explore it anyway, right? So that means that the good tackling we've seen from the Cardinal defensive backs in run support of late may become even more important. Linebackers would better be ready too. I mean, Curtis Robinson looked the part at inside linebacker last week. I thought he had a very good game. Uh, Levani DeMuni is settling in. Outside linebackers played better than I expected they would against UW. Nice to see Gabe Reed out there again for a spell. I, I really am intrigued by uh, by what we saw early in the second half where it was Robinson and DeMooney inside and Gabe Reed and Jordan Fox on the outside. Kind of like that. But I think this will be the linebacking core's biggest test yet. Maybe by far. Offensively for Stanford, given the Beavers' active linebackers, I think maybe a bit more misdirection than normal may be in order, which makes some sense. Jones has cutback ability. And Nathaniel Pete, with that straight-ahead burst, maybe some misdirection or a bit more misdirection 
uh, might be in order than normal for this game plan. We'll see. And, and let's see if the younger, less experienced guys can keep growing too, because they're going to be counted on, especially at wide receiver, as we noted earlier. And even on the offensive line, don't look now, but freshman offensive tackle Miles Hinton is gaining momentum. That's not unlike some other recent Stanford guys that David Shaw can think of who gained momentum in their freshman years and ultimately made huge impacts on the Cardinal program. I feel com comfortable making this um, comparison right now. Um, not that we're putting any pressure, any undue pressure on them. But, I mean, I see Miles the same way I saw Christian McCaffrey and Bryce Love. Um, early on, you want to spoon feed him. You just want to get him playing some college football that first year without putting everything on his shoulders. Um, if he has to go out there and play tackle um, because of injury, hey, he'll go out there and he'll do a great job. Um, there's some things that he knows better than some other things. Um, but I think right now for a young, extremely talented player, um, the the best thing for for me that I've I've seen in my my experience is to continue to give him a small role and let him get really really good at that role um, and then when the time comes for him to take on more then we give him more so I think this is just a great start to his his college career um, and uh, I think he's really shown that not only is he ready for it um, you don't see a lot of freshmen doing the things that he's doing on the field right now. Um, and I'm excited for when he gets a full off season. Um, I don't know what his body's going to look like, um, but um, it's we we think it's going to be it's going to be fun around here for a while. Yeah, I can't wait to see what Miles looks like after a year, an off season of college level training and conditioning as well. I I can't wait for that. Uh, but Miles is doing pretty well. And even though Shaw seems to have no real issues putting Hinton into the fire if necessary, if he's needed, hopefully Miles' biggest role the rest of the year is as Stanford's extra tackle and helping throw guys out the club. Second time I've used it, but I love it. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Sam. So those are my keys. Initial thoughts on things to watch for Saturday night. Cardinal versus the Beavers, I always welcome your thoughts and your keys, what you're going to be watching, what you think about Stanford football, what you think about Stanford sports, and hey, the show as well. You got thoughts, hit me up on Twitter at Troy Clarity. Give me the follow there and share your thoughts with the hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast. And again, this reminder, uh, subscribe to the show, rate the show, and review the show. Got a, got a nice got a nice uh, review on the Apple podcast side of things from someone who identifies himself as or themselves as, as KDAC9377 says, hands down the best Stanford podcast. Quote, Troy consistently delivers top-notch commentary and analysis. The interviews are tremendous, and Troy can always be counted on for balanced and insightful takes, all class, and a welcome companion for every season. Thanks, KDAC. I very much appreciate you listening to the show, and it seems that you are quite a perceptive person as well. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. But, hey, rate and review the show. I always, think, I always appreciate uh, those of you who have done so. As I always say, if you like the show, tell everyone. If you don't like the show, tell me. Let me know what I can do to make it better. Cardinal in Corvallis taking on Oregon State, a 7.30 p.m. kickoff. And our next TreeCast will come your way on Sunday as we'll break down everything that we see on Saturday night and try to set 
the stage if we can for what we might see in the mystery week, if we know by that point. So we'll see you again on Sunday. Thank you for being here with us on this one. Special thanks, big time special thanks uh, to our guest on this episode, Sam Schwartzstein, the former Stanford offensive lineman. Really appreciated his uh, time and had a lot of fun with that conversation. As always, however, the biggest thanks go out to you for joining us on the show. Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. Every bit as dumb as the person who still refuses to wear a mask in this day and age. Mask it or casket. We'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for being with us on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.